0: If you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 14. Acts 14. And there was sound. (laughs) All right. Uh, You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 923. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 18. So Acts 14, verses 8 through 18. The world around us is changing. It has always been changing, but the pace of that change seems to be particularly quick lately. A lot is still the same. People are still trying to answer the same old questions, trying to make sense of the world around them, just in different ways. Today you can go on Google and search for artificial intelligence generators and you can ask your AI whatever you want. You can have it write a paper for you. People are asking things like that. Trying to struggle through understanding things. Uh, lately, we found ourselves locked in a really big struggle over words and ideas. It's a struggle that has has led it's a really it's a struggle that is, is really it has led us to struggles over policies and ethics. It's playing itself out in the public square. There are many who are pushing to redefine basic categories that have always been accepted as plain and obvious. And as ludicrous as some of those proposals may seem to us, the reality is that those ideas are having an impact. Never before have we had to work so hard to define things as basic as what it means to be a man or to be a woman. What we have set before us is a struggle of worldviews. Now, worldviews are important because they affect the way we function as people. Uh, Dr. James Anderson, he's a professor at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, he describes a worldview as an all-encompassing philosophical view of reality that represents our basic beliefs and our assumptions as well as our values and our commitments. So a worldview is really a lens through which we view the world and it affects the way, our perception of things. It affects the way we interpret what's happening around us. We make decisions based on those things. A Christian and an atheist look at something like a hurricane in a very, very different ways. One sees the hand of providence in the midst of the storm, trusting that there is purpose in this awesome display of power. The other sees a series of accidents that are out of control and really empty of meaning. One has nothing to fear because they're driven by a conviction that God is in control. Now the other has everything to fear because in an instant, things that are beyond their control can rob them of everything they hold dear without any reason, without any purpose, and without any ultimate significance. The reason they see things differently is really because a Christian and an atheist have a different set of preconceptions about the way the world works and about why it matters those presuppositions affect our values they affect our priorities they affect our daily decisions in very different ways and they do this because they affect and direct the way that we interpret and understand what's happening around us as the late apologist Francis Schaeffer has said ideas have consequences now there are those who argue that one perspective is as good as another that there is no absolute truth or at least that truth is unknowable that's part of the worldview that has landed our culture in the chaos and the confusion that we see today it didn't happen overnight this has been going on leading up for you can trace this hundreds of years back But one way or another, that we need to understand is not the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom points us to one who sees and knows and understands all things perfectly and completely. It points us to God. The fear of the Lord, according to Proverbs 1, 7, is the beginning of knowledge. That is to say that having been created in the image of God, our greatest calling as human beings is to know God and to enjoy God, and we can do that because God has communicated Himself to us accurately and sufficiently, although not exhaustively, in His creation, in His Son, and in His inspired Word. So, let us understand, we can know God. We can know God because He has revealed Himself to us. And so, when we view ourselves and the world around us through the lens of His self-revelation, we can know and take our stand on the conviction that we have a trustworthy authority to base our decisions and the, our interpretation of the world on. It's bigger than our opinion of things. And this is essential because as John Calvin has demonstrated in the opening of his book, The Institutes of the Christian Faith, the only way we can hope to have an accurate knowledge of ourselves is if we have an accurate knowledge of God. Now, I realize that intro was very heady and a little, maybe a little too philosophical for this early in the morning, but I hope you'll see why this matters. Because the decisions and the conversations that are going to happen this week that you're going to see on the news, that you're going to hear in the break room, that you're going to talk about with your coworkers and with your friends and with your family, they have a root in something. Everyone is communicating their understanding of things. And we need, by God's grace, to have a right perspective of those things. Last week, we talked about what it meant to stand firm on the truth of the gospel. Part of doing that is recognizing that the foundation we stand on, which is the Word of God and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, directs us. It is not a... These are not just a collection of clever ideas. They are not our preference of things. They are truth. And part of the calling that we have received as disciples of Christ is in fact to engage false ideas and arguments with this truth. A truth that allows us to, to, to reach people where they're at and to direct them towards Christ. And we see the significance of that calling playing out in our passage this morning. Paul and Barnabas put a clinic on here and what it looks like to engage the culture around us with the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection so this is a passage that i hope will be helpful for you as we unpack it because i think in the end it helps us help others to see the grace of god and the power of god with a right perspective so let's begin with reading our text if you would please stand for the reading of god's word Once again, we're in Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 8 and reading through verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. And that when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, "In Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men." And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Yet even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, Paul and Barnabas' time in Lystra took them on a wild ride. <laughs> if you're not familiar with this story already, it probably took you a little bit by surprise as the way the people reacted. This is, I think, one of the most interesting responses to the gospel and the power of Christ that we see in the book of Acts. It's honestly, I think, a puzzling story. I think it's one that helps us to see the importance of God's grace in giving us a right perspective to receive the gospel with saving faith. It's also a key passage for understanding how Christ calls and equips his people to engage the false ideas and the false worldviews that dominate the world around us with the truth of the gospel. So our main idea this morning as we unpack this is to see this, that the good news of the gospel gives us a new perspective to see ourselves rightly even as we see God rightly. Gospel gives us a right perspective. We were made to glorify God, and we can only do that if we behold God rightly. We cannot know God, we cannot love God, we cannot behold Him rightly unless He opens our eyes to the truth. And Acts 14 shows us how God does that through the testimony of His Word and through the gospel of His Son. Now, if we look at this passage, I think we can very easily and accurately divide it up into three parts. First, we have this display of the power and the authority of God and Christ, the gospel being demonstrated really in the healing of this lame man. Second, we see people making a false conclusion about what they saw, which we can understand was based on a false worldview. And third, we have Paul and Barnabas working diligently to correct that false worldview by explaining the gospel to people in greater degree. So there's a lot for us to take from this passage, uh, and I think which things which equip us for the work which christ has called us to do as ambassadors for his kingdom so that's what i want to look at in this passage and i want to follow these three movements that we have in the text so first we're we'll looking at this great work have a great work in the gospel second we see a wrong reaction and third we see a right perspective so Let's begin by looking at the work itself. Now, Lystra, Lystra uh, was a city that was located just south of Iconium. If you if you weren't here last week, uh, you were, or if you were, I'll just remind you. Uh, last week, we were Paul and Barnabas were in Iconium. They spent a good amount of time there uh, working uh, to working to disciple the saints who were there uh, and also engaging with people who were trying to undo the gospel. and Finally they were pushed out, run out of town, and they went here to Lystra. Uh, It was just to the south. Lystra is not uh, a a big influential city like Antioch or Iconium. It wasn't on the main travel road. Uh, So while the leaders of the city were Roman and Greek, the city itself was able to kind of maintain its own culture and language. It's doubtful, really, as to whether or not Paul and Barnabas had originally to stop, decided to stop here, um, but pressure from Iconium had led them there, and they, we see that quickly they began sharing the good news there, just as they had in other places. Now, we know that it was Paul's custom to always start preaching the gospel in the synagogue uh, to Jews and to God-fearing Gentiles. Um, and although we know that there were some Jews who lived in this city, actually Timothy, iswise. It doesn't appear that there were as many Jews here as they were in other places. So Luke doesn't actually say anything about a synagogue here or it doesn't indicate that Paul went there and was preaching there. So it is possible that there wasn't a synagogue in this city. But all the same, we see that that did not stop him and Barnabas from preaching the gospel. To the people, And so we see that as Paul is more or less seems to be on the street is preaching the good news. We see that he takes notice of one man in particular. This is a man who Luke tells us had been had never walked he was lame from birth. So he's sitting there and he's listening to Paul preach. I suppose this guy is a bit of a captive uh, audience. It's not like he can just get up and walk off. Um, So he's there. He's listening. And as people are walking by, perhaps stopping for a little bit, to listen to what Paul said before they went on the rest of what they had planned for that day, this man really had nowhere else to go. He heard Paul proclaim the good news of Jesus, how he lived, how he died, how he rose again, how he ascended into heaven. He heard of Jesus' power as the Son of God and how Jesus was the promised Messiah who God had anointed and sent to atone for sin through his death. He heard about how Jesus had overcome death through his resurrection and he heard Paul call him and others to repentance and belief. That's what he did in every city that he went to and we would expect he would do nothing different here. Now, from our perspective, this whole situation just seems a little circumstantial. But clearly God had a purpose for landing Paul and Barnabas precisely where they were at precisely the right time. You see as Paul preached something began to happen. The words of the gospel started taking root in this man's heart. And Paul says in verse 9, or sorry, Luke says in verse 9 that Paul noticed this. He says and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. Now, in verse 3, which we looked at last week, Luke told us that as they preached the gospel in Iconium, the Lord had been bearing witness to the word of his grace by doing wonders and miracles through them. He didn't record any of those miracles, but he does record this one. The purpose, as we talked about last week, the purpose of those signs and those wonders was to confirm to people that the message that Paul and Barnabas were bringing them was in fact true. That's the exact same thing that's happening here with this lame man. Paul was preaching. God moved uh, in, it moved him to see this man and to say this to him, a man who he had never met before. And to the amazement of everyone, Luke says that this man sprang up and began walking. No limping, no delay, no staggering around. In an instant, this man was healed fully. And so people saw this testimony of the power and the authority of Christ. The very Christ that Paul and Barnabas had come to tell them about. Now before we get to the crowd reaction, there's just a few things we need to notice about this work itself. First, we need to stop and recognize that this, this was an act of God's grace and his kindness towards this man. The power at work here is God's. Before this day, Paul didn't know that this man even existed. But God did. And it was not an accident that Paul and Barbus had arrived here with the message of the good news. It was not an accident that this man was where he was when he was there. It was not an accident that his heart was opened to the truth of the gospel so that he had faith to believe it. It was not an accident that Paul noticed him and realized what God was doing. And it was not an accident that God moved Paul to speak to him so boldly that he and the crowds around him got to see the authentic power of Christ in the truth of the gospel. So without a doubt, we have to understand this man had suffered greatly. But as we look at this, we can also clearly see that his suffering had a purpose to show the surpassing greatness of the glory of Christ. This man found the grace of God to be more than sufficient for him. And he got to experience the power of Christ firsthand in an amazing way. God's great grace turned his lameness into leaping, his sorrow into joy, his poverty into riches. So the whole point of this act was to glorify Christ as king, to show that the gospel was true. The second thing to notice about this miracle is specifically what Luke says about the presence of this man's faith. His faith is what Paul noticed about him. While others were, I'm sure, passing Paul by, going about their daily business, this man was locked in to what Paul was saying. Paul, looking at him, intently could see the flicker of faith in his eyes. He could see that the Holy Spirit was clearly working in this man. The message of the gospel was taking hold of him. And while he did not ask or demand to be made well, God healed him. A few weeks ago, we talked about what faith is. Faith is not wishful thinking. It's when hearing the truth, we believe that it is true and we entrust ourselves to it. Faith is not something to use to strong arm God into giving us what we want. Faith is when we submit ourselves to God, acting on His promises by entrusting ourselves, our, our needs, our desires, our hope to Him. As Paul told people about the life and the ministry of Jesus, this man got to hear their testimony of the power Jesus, They got to hear the stories of, of how Jesus had made men like him whole. He believed that Jesus could make him well, and God, by his grace, healed him to the effect that everyone who saw this got to see the power of Christ as well. So as we look at the faith of this man, we need to understand that he was not healed in measure of his faith so much as he was healed in measure of the Power and the grace of God. And I want to make that point to you because I don't want you to fall into the error of the word of faith movement that is so dominant in our culture today, which tries to make God a means to an end. Which says if you believe something enough, God has to give you that thing. And if you don't get that thing, it's because you didn't have enough faith. That is a lie. So we see this man, we see the faith that was at work in him. We need to credit the grace of God. And we also need to recognize that faith is the manner in which we receive that grace. So as we look at this, we want to see that that God was working in a powerful way to exalt Christ. And we also want to see that... um, that this man got to experience that grace in a special way in a physical way even as we get to experience the spiritual healing through faith in christ the point of this miracle was to show that the gospel the message that was being preached by paul and barnabas was in fact true it is astonishing to see how closely this miracle and luke's account of it mirrors the way that Peter healed that lame man who was at the gate of the temple back in Acts 3. The words here are are very, very similar, and Luke means for you to see that. The same power that was at work in Peter in Jerusalem is the same power that was at work here, now, in Paul, here in Lystra. And it all centers on the authority of King Jesus. Now that's a right interpretation of the miracle, And it's the thing that people were supposed to see and understand as the gospel was being preached to them. But unfortunately, that's not exactly what happened, is it? Luke tells us in verse 11 through 13 that the people had a very wrong response to what they had just seen. So that's what we're going to look at next, a, a wrong reaction. Now, there's an old myth told by a guy named Ovid, which tells a story about Zeus and Hermes, the two Greek gods, Zeus is like, he's the head of the pantheon. Hermes is the god's messenger. He always brings news from the gods. So the story goes that Zeus and Hermes came down to a certain valley disguised as humans. And while they were there, they were traveled around and they visited all the locals. They, they were there on a mission. They wanted to test the friendliness and the hospitality of people. And they were very disappointed with what they found. Everywhere they go, every door they knocked on, they were turned away, sometimes violently. People all over the valley refused to help them or even give them the time of day. Finally, towards the end of the day, Ovid says, They came to a humble cottage made of straw and reeds where they met an elderly couple named Philemon and Bacchus who invited them in and hosted them, even though they had very little to their name. Well, the next day, Ovid says, the two gods took this couple to the top of a mountain, and then they brought a storm that flooded the whole valley and killed everyone in it. The gods then took this humble home where they had spent the night, and they turned it into a magnificent temple with a golden roof, and they appointed this couple to serve as the priests and the priestess of this temple. All this, Ovid claims, happened somewhere in the valley where Lystra was was located. It was a story that everyone in the town, everyone in the region knew about and would have been familiar with, and it helps to explain a little bit more about why the crowds reacted the way that they did when they saw this lame man made well. In verse 11, Luke tells us that when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And then we're told that they started calling Barnabas, who was letting Paul do most of the speaking, Zeus. And they started calling Paul, since he was doing all the talking, Hermes, because that's what Hermes does. He's the chief speaker. And so the priest who of Zeus, who's at the front of the town, hears about all this, and he goes, and he goes and gets oxen and garlands, and he's like, let's have a sacrifice. Let's worship. Let's, let's do this. Now, if there were ever to be a facepalm moment, this would be it, right? Paul and Barnabas are in the city. They are preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. They are telling people about the one true God and about his son who has come to redeem them from their sin. And then Paul, to show them that this message is true, God does this amazing thing through, through Paul. And it should have shown everyone that the gods they were fearing, the gods they were serving, were not gods at all that this miracle and the gospel that Paul had been preaching were meant to point people to the one true living God not to some statue not to some myth but to the one who is keeping them alive at that very moment they were meaning to point people to Jesus the incarnate son of God who came to deliver them from their enslavement to lies but instead as the crowds see this i tells you i think maybe a little a little bit about how closely they were listening to Paul as he was preaching they, they grossly misunderstand what had happened they revert back to what they've always known they, they read the situation through the lens of a pagan worldview. they didn't want to be part two of Ovid's myth so they did what any pagan in their position would do they got ready to sacrifice and worship their gods sacrifice two and worship their gods they were convinced that that was what was happening here with Paul and Barnabas now as we read this you kind of chuckle a little bit because this is this all is it's so it feels so it feels kind of primitive it's it's kind of comical from a modern perspective but i think as we read this it shows just how deeply seated their preconceptions of the world really were No one questioned whether or not a miracle had just happened. That was plainly evident. The problem here is in the explanation. They looked at what they had seen, and they made sense of it through a wrong worldview, and that's what led them to respond in a wrong way. The truth is, I don't think that people today would really react to something like this ultimately any different than what we see people here. We, you might not see people trying to sacrifice to, to the gods, but you would see a thousand interpretations of this, some most of which probably trying to explain away the miracle of what had just happened. You would see people reading their worldview into what they had just saw. Just think about for a moment, for, I think one example of this that stands out the most to me is to think about the way people treat creation. The world is an amazing place. But for those who deny a creator, it's nothing more than a series of unexplained accidents with no purpose and no real beauty. Other people look at creation, they do things like consulting the stars as to somehow think that balls of burning light light years away from us are somehow able to direct and affect things here. Then there are those who are so fascinated with the idea of alien life that they search the stars for it, hoping to somehow find greater meaning and explanation for how life came to earth. All of these, though they search diligently in creation, though they would tell you the world is an amazing place, they search for meaning in it and significance in it, and they come up empty. Why? Why? Because they search for ultimate meaning in creation, not in the Creator. They are blind to God, blind to His power, blind to His glory, unwilling to hear the plain message that is being told day and night by the world around us. The Bible tells us that this is actually one of God's, one of the ways God's wrath plays itself out towards the ungodliness of men who we're told, Suppress the truth with their unrighteousness. Romans 1 explains that though God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, though those things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, though it is plain to see, they refuse to see it. So, Paul says, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Continuing on, he says, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their heart to impurity Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, Paul wrote those words a little less than 2,000 years ago. And yet, it is uncanny to see our own culture reflected in those words today. The glory of God is not hidden from anyone. It is as plain as the sun as it rises in the east and sets in the west with perfect timing. It is seen in the movements of the bee whose body is constructed so that it really shouldn't be able to fly, and yet it does. It is shown in the deep waters that would crush you in an instant with its weight, and yet it is home to the mysterious anglerfish and the sea cucumber. It is shown in the expanse of Of the universe the balance of the laws of physics the very breath that is in your nose right now all these things declare the glory of God and yet people still refuse to see it they cling to faulty worldviews that send them scrambling for significance and explanation which ultimately offer neither one this is why we need God's Word. We cannot understand ourselves if we do not have an accurate understanding of who He is. Before we can make claims about reality, we need an authority outside of ourselves, something that is able to give us a sort of God's eye view of things. Despite what people will say, we need to see, we need revelation, really, to inform our reason. As Augustine puts it, we believe so that we may understand. When you press into anyone's system of thinking, you're always going to find a certain kind of faith. It might be a faith in a certain kind of deity. It might be faith in destiny. It might be faith in material. But there is faith, and that faith informs what they do and what they see about the world. But the Bible shows us that there is only one Son of God. There is only one who is able to show us the Father, to bring us to Him. There is only one whose redemptive work is able to make us righteous and remove that false filter that causes us to see the world in wrong ways. It's not Zeus or Hermes. It's not Thor or Odin. It's not crystals or elements. It is not material or gravity. It's Christ. And as believers, one of the things God has called us to do is to bear witness about Him, to be salt and light in the darkness, calling people to leave vain things and to find life in His name. And that is what we see Paul and Barnabas doing as this chaotic scene set out before them. They worked to show people a right perspective. And that brings us to our third point. Now, Luke specifies that when people saw what had happened, they explained the way they did in their own native tongues. So that probably explains a little bit about how everything got out of hand so quickly without Paul and Barnabas realizing what was going on. I don't think they really understood what was happening until they saw the, the priest of Zeus showing up with oxen trying to make a sacrifice. When they did figure it out, they rushed into action. Luke says that they tore their garments and ran into the crowds, crying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men like you, of like nature with you. We brought you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Part of being a faithful witness we see from Paul and Barnabas is helping people to see God in a right perspective. In coming to share the good news with this city, Paul and Barnabas had come to call people away from serving false gods, to serve the one true living God. They, They tore their garments to show the people how serious the situation was. What the people were doing in attributing the work of Christ to Zeus was blasphemy. And Paul and Barnabas needed people to know that. In verse 16, Paul explains how in past generations, God had allowed nations, the nations like these people, to go on and walk in the error of their ways. He had given them over to the futility of their ways and the darkness of their understanding. But now, since Christ had come and overcome through the cross, God had determined to call the nations to himself That is why Paul and Barnabas had come to Lystra in the first place, to tell people the good news about him. Now, as we see this, Paul and Barnabas weren't just trying to redirect people's efforts in worship. They were not trying to baptize their pagan practices. No, no, no. They were trying to, they were bearing witness to people about the truth of the one true living God calling them to forsake false gods, to come to God through repentance and faith in his son. They had come to call people out of the vanity of false religions with their false worldviews to find truth and life in the light and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In verse 17, Paul and Barnabas explained to the people how God had always graciously cared for them in spite of the way they rebelled and continued to do so against him. All the things they had asked their gods for were actually from him as a part of his mercy and grace. He had sent the rain. He had given them crops. He had blessed them with a land to call their own, with families and friends and and all the other graces that God had poured out, what what we refer to as his common grace. Never should we ever doubt God's love for the world. It's easy to get bitter about things, to get bitter about people's blindness to the truth, and just want to kind of throw them off, or discount them. But God has shown His love to the world, and that He has given His only begotten Son to be the Redeemer of men and women from every nation, and every tribe, and every people, and every language. Likewise, He has sent His people out into the world to be witnesses of this gospel, calling people everywhere to repent and believe and receive life in Christ. That is God's love towards the world. But it's a love that people are blind to because there is a veil that lies over men and women's hearts. It is a veil of sin and death. It's a filter which colors everything they see. It causes them to do things like what we see the people in Lystra do, It is a powerful force. After all, Luke says that even after Paul and Barnabas ran into the crowds in this way, begging them, pleading with them to stop following these vain idols, they could scarcely restrain them from doing so. But this is not a force that is impossible to overcome. The veil which lays over the hearts and minds of the crowds once laid over our hearts In Ephesians 2, we're told that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead in those things in which we once walked, but God made us alive. He did that through the testimony of the gospel and the power and the work of Christ as his Holy Spirit worked in us. We are all products of grace if we have believed this message. Even so, God has called us to reach others with this message as well. And he has promised to work through that testimony for the glory of Christ. So let's embrace that responsibility. And as we do, let's keep three things in mind. First, remember that the power of salvation belongs to God and God alone. I heard someone ask recently about why somebody who believes that God will save a person no matter what, would even bother to get out of bed in the morning and want to share the gospel with anyone. And the guy who was answering this just kind of laughed. And he said, Well, that's quite simply, because the person who believes that God is sovereign in salvation has the guarantee of success driving them to share that good news. Knowing God's passion for the glory of His Son, we have every reason in the world to share this message expectantly with people because we have the promise that Jesus gave in John 10 that as the good shepherd his sheep hear his voice and they come to him and no one can take them out of his hand so remember that and take heart when you go into dark places that seem impossible remember that the voice of the shepherd is stronger than the hold of the darkness second, humble yourselves this week Remembering that you were saved by God apart from anything that you did. This lame man laying there listening to Paul preach didn't do anything to earn this healing. It was a gift of grace. If you're a Christian, understand you were rescued from an impossible situation. You were dead. God made you alive. And he did this because of his great love. Not because you earned that love but because of his great mercy and grace and his imperative to glorify his son. Third, be careful to keep this message pure. Paul and Barnabas didn't try and find a way to convert the pe- the passion people had in their own pagan way of thinking into a passion for Jesus. They didn't syncretize Jesus and Zeus. They called people to reject old false ways embrace the truth and the gospel and the life of Christ. Jesus tells us that you cannot have another master besides him and still hope to be received into his household. We must be careful not to lose the pure gospel. Just as light has no fellowship with darkness, the truth of the gospel has no fellowship with the lies of false religion and false superstition and fleshly preferences there is only one savior there's only one gospel there is only one hope so hold fast to that conviction as you speak to others about the hope of the gospel that is in you and trust that God is going to work through that the gospel of God's grace puts the world in a whole new perspective it's like it's like uh, you see these videos where people are colorblind And they've only ever seen the world a certain way. And then they get these glasses in the mail and they pop them on. And suddenly they're brought to tears. Because they see the world the way it was meant to be seen. That's what the gospel of grace does. It takes away the blindness of our hearts. And it shows us the beauty of Christ. And we have the great privilege as followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ, to share that good news with others. Trusting that He will give that new perspective blind hearts. The gospel changes what our hearts love and treasure. And so as we seek to be faithful to our Lord, let's always treasure him and may he use us effectively to bring others into the depths of his joy. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we just want to thank you for the way that you have opened our own eyes to the truth. And Father, you have also called us to be faithful witnesses to this gospel in the world around us. You, you, Father, you didn't pull us out of the world yet. You have work for us to do. And that work is to, is to the glory of Christ, to tell others about the, the good news of what he's done for us. So Father, this morning, as, as I come before you, I want to pray on behalf of this church that we would be faithful to that task. And that through that, the, the, the scales that are lying over the eyes of the people around us would fall off. And they would see the brilliance of King Jesus for the first time and love him with all their hearts. Father, we pray that you would call your sheep to yourself and use us effectively as servants in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.